Please take your Bibles, turn them with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. So imagine, rewind the clock back a little bit, imagine that it's uh, 1030, 1040 on a Sunday morning here at Harbin's Church, the service is about to begin, and you're outside in the foyer, and, uh, and you notice someone pulling into the parking lot in a Lamborghini, and emerging from the car is a family uh, dressed like they just did a photo shoot for a magazine. Guy's wearing a a Rolex watch, his wife is wearing whatever is high-end fashion today. I don't know about those things. Half of you do, maybe. Um, She's got diamond earrings. Uh, He's got nice-smelling cologne. She's got a a sweet-smelling perfume. they got a few kids. They're all nice. They're well-behaved. They're perfectly dressed. They're all carrying very large, hardbound ESV study Bibles very well put together, looking family. They're all smiling and happy. They're, they're obviously well-to-do. Now, imagine also at the, arriving at the same time as that family, somebody else arrives. And you don't see their car in the parking lot because this person could be a man, could be a woman. They just walked off the street. Clothes are, 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 are filthy, uh, smelly, even a little odor coming from them, uh, hair uncombed, bloodshot eyes. This person's not smiling. They might be homeless. They might be looking for a handout. Who knows? The question is, would you treat them any differently? Would you have a tendency to gravitate towards one and avoid the other? Uh, Would you be more interested in one joining Harbin's church than the other? We have a fellowship meal coming up after the service. Would you be more eager to sit with and give attention to one more than the other? Is there anything in your heart that would move you to be impressed with one and to avoid and maybe even regard the other as less significant? Let's change it up a little bit. What if somebody came in completely tattooed up with earrings and nose rings and eyebrow rings uh, versus somebody who was totally clean cut? What difference might you have in your reception of them? Or what if someone came in and they were the same race as you? Would you have a tendency to treat them different than someone who looked different? Or if you're a young person, how differently might you respond to another young person coming into your church versus an elderly person in a wheelchair? These questions are, are just meant to prime the pump a little bit and get us thinking as we get ready to look at James chapter 2 that I addresses, that, that addresses what I think for some of us might be uncomfortable, and it's the, it's the topic of the sin of partiality or favoritism, uh, of making judgments and showing favor or withholding favor exclusively on the basis of external temporal realities instead of spiritual eternal realities. But before we dive into James 2, let's remember where we've been. It's been a couple weeks. Because what James has to say here is flowing from what he's been writing about at the end of chapter 1, where he's been warning people who may have a measure of religiosity, uh, they may have the appearance of being pious, but they have a corrupt heart. 
It's possible to appear impressive outwardly, but God sees through all of that pretense, and He's really interested in what's going on inside. And chapter 1 ends with James saying that pure religion is seen as, uh, when one keeps himself unstained from the world. Now, that doesn't mean being a monk out in the desert somewhere detached from society, but rather it means detaching oneself from the thinking and from the philosophy and from the attitude of a world that is in hostile rebellion to God. Uh, worldly thinking is thinking that puts self at the center, that really puts anything besides God's glory at the center of uh, our existence and our affections. And when we get to chapter 2, James now gives us an example of worldly thinking that runs contrary to the ways of God, attitudes that pe- the people of God should reject and run away from. And so my prayer has been, uh, leading up to this message, uh, my prayer has been that as we read and meditate on this text, we wouldn't just gloss over it and, and think, well, I don't have a problem there. <laughs> now, I'm not prejudiced. Uh, maybe so-and-so sitting next to me does, and I'm glad that they're there, but, but for me, I'm good. Don't, don't do that this morning. Uh, let this Word penetrate your heart, and as James said in chapter 1, don't be a hearer of the Word only, but seek to be also a doer of the Word, putting into practice, starting at around 1215 when this service is done, putting those things into practice right here in this church in this body. This is, this is going to be very important and very practical for us. So, let's hear God's Word right now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. James chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and we'll read on down through verse 8. The Holy Spirit says, "'My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not made then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers." Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And they are, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself." you are doing well. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that Your Word would do what it does best, which is cut deep, which is penetrate, which is expose thoughts and attitudes. And Father, I also pray that Your Word would do what it does best, which is encourage and equip and heal. So, Father, I I pray this morning that You would have Your hand of favor upon both the preaching of the Word and also the hearing of the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, James is going to teach us here a few things about partiality 
that are very helpful. And the, and the first thing he gives us is a description of partiality. He gives us partiality's description, which in essence is gospel-contradicting. Gospel-contradicting. James begins verse 1 by saying, my brothers, show no partiality. Now, that word partiality in the Greek seems to have been invented by the New Testament writers. You see this elsewhere in the New Testament. You don't see it anywhere else outside of the New Testament. Literally, the word means receiving the face. Uh, The idea is receiving or accepting or making value judgments exclusively on the basis of outward appearances, on external factors on making unjust distinctions between people and then, and as a consequence, treating one person better than another. Now, the key word there in that definition is unjust, unjust distinctions, because it's not always sinful to make distinctions between people and, and to treat them differently. For example, no other woman in this congregation is going to get flowers from me on Valentine's Day. That's reserved for my wife. And there's nobody sitting around in this room angry about that, uh, thinking, well, well, that's, uh, that's a violation of James chapter 2. Uh, Deemer showing partiality uh, by just only giving her flowers on Valentine's Day. Nobody is thinking that. There are certain distinctions that we do make between people that are appropriate and good. Bible elsewhere says, give honor to those whom honor is due. Bible talks about uh, honoring those in, in, in uh, leadership positions over you. Even the apostle Peter says, honor the emperor. James, though, is talking about something very, very different. It's a kind of behavior and attitude that is unbiblical, and it actually runs against the grain of the gospel. James says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea there is that these two things don't mix. If you're holding on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you can't at the same time hold on to partiality. I like J.D. Phillips' paraphrase of this verse where he writes, Don't ever attempt, my brothers, to combine snobbery with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The two don't go together. They contradict each other, and we're going to find out why shortly. So that's partiality's description. It's gospel contradiction, uh, gospel contradicting. Next, we see partiality's problem, which is an exchange of glory, an exchange of glory. James says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Interesting terminology there that he uses to describe Jesus. You know, some people say that, well, James doesn't have a high view of Jesus compared to some of the other New Testament writers. He only mentions Jesus two times. He doesn't, you know, really talk about the deity of Christ or, or, or get into all those details about uh, the specifics of Christ. Uh, I would say that those critics are, are not reading and thinking clearly enough as they're reading the book of James. Uh, the two times that James does mention Jesus, uh, it's pretty powerful. Uh, so, for example, in James chapter 1, oh, by the way, I should back up. We should remember that James used to be an unbeliever. James is the blood brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the son of Mary, and he used to think Jesus was crazy. He used to mock Jesus and, and make fun of Jesus, but something happened, obviously, to James. God got a hold of him and changed his mind about Jesus. And so, you come to James chapter 1, verse 1, and right off the bat, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls his own sibling Lord. He says he's a servant of his sibling, and he puts him on the same plane as God. 
I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you can't have a higher view of Jesus than that. But then we get down to chapter 2, and, and, and he does it again. He, he, he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, again, calling him Lord, calling him Christ. In other words, he is the Messiah. He's received him as Messiah. But then he does something else. He calls him the Lord of glory. Now, James's original Jewish audience, when they hear that word glory, their minds are going to be taken back to the Old Testament and that bright light that Shekinah glory of God, of Yahweh. Uh, it's, it's associated with the, the beauty and the brilliance of God Himself. It's associated with the fullness of the presence of God. And James is connecting that same glory with Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of glory. It is a reference to the deity of Christ. Again, you can't have a higher view of Jesus than what James is talking about here. Now, this reference to glory is not incidental. It's tied in directly to where James is going in this text. He is putting before us two sources of glory. We have on the one hand, Jesus, the Lord of glory in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we are introduced to a worldly kind of glory, the glory of man. Uh, what, what man values, what man thinks is important, what is worthy of our notice and, and attention according to the ways of man. And the scenario that James is going to give us here is, is actually just one example. Because in verse 1, that word partiality in the Greek literally is in the plural, partialities. James is concerned about all kinds of unjust partialities that can happen in the church, all types of favoritism. And he's just giving us one example here, but it is a common example and probably something that we can relate to. In verse 2, James sets the scene of a church meeting going on, and there's, there's limited seating. The assembly halls back then, they had some benches in the back, and they had some in the front. Then everybody else had to stand or, or sit on the floor. And James gives us an image of a visitor arriving, and he is wearing a gold ring. That would not have been common. Uh, the gold ring was an emblem of the upper-level Roman class uh, this is someone who is wearing on his finger a flashy sign of great wealth and influence, someone who is high up on society's totem pole. James says also he's wearing fine clothing. Uh, that word fine in the Greek is lampra. We get our word lamp from it. So what do you think that this is saying about this man's clothing? It's brilliant. It's shining. Uh, this, his clothes are dazzling. In fact, that word is applied in the New Testament to the dazzling, bright clothes of angelic beings. So this guy is entering the church, and he is decked out, and he looks glorious. He, he looks extremely impressive and extremely attractive. And then James says, now imagine someone else coming into that church meeting and he is wearing shabby clothes. A shabby translates a word from the same root as the word James uses in chapter 1 to describe the sinful filth that Christians must put off. So this person is in filthy, disgusting clothes. Uh, this person may be a, uh, a, just a, a poor day laborer or even a beggar. Uh, it may be the only clothes that he has, so he works in those clothes and sweats in those clothes and sleeps in those same clothes, and, and he goes to church in those clothes. 
So James is giving us a contrast here, and to put it in modern terms, it'd be like the contrast I gave you at the beginning of the message. You got the family in the Lamborghini coming in, and then you got the homeless person coming in. And James's concern is that you've got uh, these two kinds of people, and they are treated very differently by the church. James says in verse 3 that you are paying attention to the one who wears the fine, shining clothing, the one that appears glorious to you, and you say, sit in this good place. You're treating him with special attention and favor. You are giving him honor while you turn around to that poor man and say, stand over there. Uh, Sit at my feet. Now, the problem here is not that they're seeking to be kind to the rich man. They should be kind to him. The problem is that they have considered the rich man to be more valuable, to be superior, to be more important and worthy of special attention and deference than the poor man. And consequently, they are unjust and unkind in their dealings with the poor man. James says that is worldly thinking. This is what the sinful world does all the time making value judgments based on outward appearance. Happens all the time. We tend to evaluate others based on a person's wealth or a person's physical attractiveness or a person's perceived power or status or based on a person's race. It can happen all kinds of ways. And James says, when you do this, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Now, that Greek word translated here as distinctions more commonly means to waver or to be inconsistent, to lack wholehearted devotion. In fact, that's exactly how James uses the word in chapter 1, verse 6. You can turn back there with me if you want. James chapter 1, verse 6. Actually, you can back up to verse 5. And James says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. That word translated as doubting is actually in the Greek the exact same word in chapter 2, verse 4, translated as distinctions. And in James chapter 1, the question is whether we are fully devoted to God and seeking His wisdom during the time of trial, Or are we wavering in that because what we really trust is our own wisdom? And similarly, in chapter 2, verse 4, the question is whether we will be fully devoted to God and putting His glory first in our scale of values, or if we are wavering in that and therefore will allow ourselves to be led by the standards of this world in deciding what is worthy and what is worthwhile. So while the ESV translates chapter 2, verse 4 as, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? I agree with Alec Mortier, who says a better way to render the sense of verse 4 from the Greek would be, are you not inconsistent within yourselves? The idea is a divided heart, divided loyalties. They, on the one hand, hold the faith of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, and on the other hand, are captured and dazzled by another glory, the glory of man being drawn to and impressed with the outward appearance of the wealthy. In their partiality, they're exchanging the greater glory of Christ for a lesser glory. And what's the result? Verse 4, have you not then become judges with evil thoughts? He says, you set yourselves up as judges determining what is valuable and what is less valuable, and you have coldly decided that the soul of the rich man is valuable. And the, and the soul of the poor man is not worth so much. 
simply on the basis of externals. You are, uh, you're valuing and treasuring things that God does not value and treasure, and you become judges judging with a wrong standard. And that's exactly why you're treating them differently. He says you are judges with evil thoughts. And what is at the heart of those evil thoughts? Well, that leads to my next observation, partiality's root, which is self-centeredness. James says, you have become judges with evil thoughts. That could be translated evil reasonings. The NASB translates it as evil motives. There are dark motives that are driving our partiality. And what's the motive? What could possibly be the motive of favoring a rich man over a poor man? Hmm? I don't think this is a hard one. This is not rocket science. There's a line in the movie The Sound of Music that I have always found as both funny and convicting at the same time, where one character says, I like rich people. I like the way they live, and I like the way I live when I'm with them. That line makes me laugh, but it also makes me uncomfortable because there is something there in that sentiment that I can relate to. There can be benefits and kickbacks when you associate with those who have more means than you do, when you're around those who have more power and influence than you do. You think about the first century persecuted church that James was writing to, almost all of these people were poor with no power. They were marginalized, and they were mocked, and they were made fun of. In fact, one of the early arguments against Christianity was that it was full of poor people, that it was full of marginalized people. You don't want to be a Christian, they said. That's a religion for slaves, for outcasts, for those of low society. I mean, their founder was crucified on a criminal's cross for crying out loud. You don't want anything to do with that. So you can imagine how the early church in that situation would be tempted seeing that impressive nobleman flashing their gold bling and sporting their brilliant clothes. How they might be tempted to, to show special favor and, 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 and give special honor to that person. They're thinking, well, this might be our ticket out of persecution. This might help our status in the community. We could gain respectability and, and might be able to better advance the cause of Christ. And when we do that, we're, we're, no, we're no better than those that Jude talks about, in Jude chapter 1 verse 16, talks about those who, who show favoritism in order to gain advantage. Now, Harbin's church isn't under persecution, but, but we can relate to all of this somewhat. Imagine again, you got that old homeless person walking into our assembly, and coming in behind him was somebody ridiculously rich and ridiculously famous and culturally influential, like Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man. I looked up his net worth, $300 million. Nobody in here comes close to that kind of wealth. If Robert Downey Jr. walked into this church and you recognized who it was, who would not be tempted to pass over that homeless visitor and quickly show Mr. Downey some special deference and some extra attention? Oh, it's Mr. Downey. Oh, can I get you some coffee, Mr. Downey? Oh, here's a nice place to sit, Mr. Downey. Oh, do you want to get first in line for, for the food, Mr. Downey? Everybody, this is Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man is here. Everybody, 
coming up for selfies. All the while that that homeless man has come and gone and nobody has seen him. Who among us would not be thinking, well, if Robert Downey Jr. got saved, imagine how much he could do for the kingdom. Imagine if he started tithing. Can you imagine how many missionaries we could support and how many churches we could plant and what, what kind of things we could do for the kingdom? What's more, we could, we could trot him out as some sort of trophy to the community and say, hey, everybody, even Iron Man believes the gospel. Robert Daddy Jr. goes to Harbin's, and you should believe the gospel, and, and you should come to Harbin's too. Now, it's not that it, it, it's, it would be wrong to want him to be saved. And it's not wrong for us as a church to consider what more we might do for the kingdom if we had more resources. The problem is, is that if we are showing special attention and favor to the wealthy, to the politicians, to the celebrities, because of what they could do for us or what we can get from them, that means we are not loving the person, we are loving the power. We are loving what they can do for us, even if it's good things. I think the American church in particular is susceptible to this. We love, we love to ride the coattails of anybody who is at least somewhat famous, who even implicitly suggests that they might possibly, perhaps, maybe be a Christian. We fawn all over people like that. But should some famous actor or athlete or musician who gives props to God in a five-second soundbite receive more honor than a 90-year-old woman on Social Security who is a quiet prayer warrior and a faithful member of a gospel-preaching church for 70 years? The church's priorities are often very mixed up and very worldly. And don't think for a second that Harbin's church is above that kind of behavior. These warnings are in the Scriptures for a reason. We can all fall into a partiality that is self-serving and unloving. And remember again, that word partiality is in the plural. This whole rich-poor thing is just one example. Money is not the only factor of favoritism. There are many ways in church life that you and I can evaluate and judge others based on worldly, sinful standards, where our interactions with others in the church are not governed by the idea that they're made in the precious image of God and therefore of equal worth and value and dignity and that we should be serving them. Instead, sometimes our value system is controlled by what benefit we think that person is going to provide for us in the moment, how they might serve us. There is an attitude that we can have that says, as long as this person is a net benefit to me somehow, if they make me laugh, if they make me feel good about myself, so long as that person makes my life more pleasant and enjoyable, then I'm going to keep hanging out with them. I'll keep showing them special favor and attention and love. But the moment that person becomes a net negative, maybe they're awkward. Maybe they make my life a little less enjoyable. Maybe we don't have much in common. Uh, If I spend time after the church service talking with them instead of my closest friends, it's just not going to be very pleasant for me. And so then I'm going to avoid that person. I'm going to exclude that person. I'm just going to stay in my own little clique where I feel safe and comfortable. 
We can't, on the one hand, value and honor certain people in the church, and at the same time, on the other hand, uh, there are others that we won't give that honor and attention to. Sure, we'll never tell anyone to sit on the floor, but at the same time, we'll never invite them to sit with us at a fellowship meal or to our own house. Sometimes, many times, I think we do this not because we intentionally try to exclude someone, but because we just naturally, in our nature, gravitate towards those with whom we experience a net gain. And that's not to say, of course, that there are not going to be some folks that we're closer to than others, or that because of some common interest that we may feel a natural affinity, a natural gravitation towards that person in regards to a relationship. You can't be everybody's best friend. I get that. Even Jesus had an inner circle with whom he spent more time with than others, but it was never an exclusive circle. He always took time. He, he had special moments with all kinds of people. My point is simply that we must guard against a sinful partiality towards others that is rooted in selfishness, where it's all about what other people can do for me, because that's, that kind of attitude is the exact opposite of how God is. Fourth observation, partiality's orientation, which is anti-God, anti-God. James roots his command against partiality, not in his own preference or personal opinion, but, but in the very ways and character of God, a God who does not show partiality. If you read throughout the Scriptures, you will see this in several places, how uh, it talks about one of the attributes of God is being a God who, unlike us, does not show uh, partiality, does not judge based on shallow, superficial distinctions. Look at verse 5. James says, "'Listen, my beloved brothers,' Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Now, I love James's reasoning here. He says, you are judging and despising people based on these superficial standards, based on the fact that they are economically unimpressive. It's not how God operates. In fact, the kind of people you despise are the same kind of people God loves to save. Now, of course, James is not saying that God exclusively loves poor people, and and he's not saying that God chooses poor people because their poorness somehow makes them virtuous or worthy. If that were the case, God would be exhibiting standards of of unjust partiality too, basing everything on, on these superficial standards. In fact, we see from Scripture the wealthy also experiencing God's love and mercy. You can probably think of a number of Bible characters who were extraordinarily wealthy, who were part of the people of God, everyone from Abraham to Job to David to Lydia in the New Testament and others. And, of course, there are Christians today who are very wealthy, and they are faithfully serving God with their wealth. Praise God for that. Nothing wrong with being materially rich. But at the same time, as a general rule, Most of the believers for the past 2,000 years and around the world today are among the poor. Wealthy, Western, influential Christians are an anomaly. You are an anomaly in the history of the church. Historically, God has tended to show His favor very often to those whom the world would have a tendency not to favor, but to despise, to not be impressed with, those who would 
not be judged as important. Again, this is why Christianity was mocked in the first century as being a religion for the lowlifes and the misfits. And this is why the Apostle Paul, this is what he was getting at when he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Why is that? He goes on to say, because so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, so that no man might have the glory. Again, we have two glories set before us, and the glory of man is always competing with the glory of God. But the glory of man is a dead end. And when God begins to build His kingdom, He does it by calling those into it who are not wise according to the ways of the world, not noble, not mighty, not powerful, not awesome, because God did not need the power of rich Roman noblemen or senators or Emperor Claudius himself in the first century to advance the kingdom. And He doesn't need Robert Downey Jr. or or Bill Gates. By the way, Bill Gates is much, much richer net worth $100 billion with a B, $100 billion. Imagine if he started tithing. Or President Trump, the most powerful man in the world. He, he doesn't need any of those people. Instead, the kingdom advances. And by the way, I'm not making heart judgments on any of those. I don't know them. I'm just saying God doesn't need them. Instead, the kingdom advances mostly through the nobodies of the world. And when this kingdom moves forward and spreads and advances to the end of the earth, what does it do? It puts on display the power and the glory of God because it's clear that what is happening is not through the strength of man, but through the might of God. He has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs, heirs of the kingdom, which means that that lowly, homeless Christian whom the world and some in the church despise and look down upon, and that single mom who loves the Lord Jesus and is on food stamps, barely making ends meet, and that persecuted believer in Eritrea being locked in a sweltering hot shipping container because they won't renounce Jesus and the glory found in Him, and that disciple in Tanzania who wonders where her next meal will come from, these are all heirs to the kingdom, and one day they will be rulers of the cosmos as they reign alongside of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so why would you withhold from these poor believers honor and deference and attention? Why would you, why would you do that? It's not the way of the gospel. The gospel levels the playing field. The gospel says we're all inherently unworthy. Uh, We're all inherently corrupt in sinners. We all deserve the same thing, which is not inheritance but hell. And yet God comes into the world and He's saving all kinds of people so that the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that there is no Jew or Greek, there is no male or female, there is no slave or free. And we are all one in Christ Jesus, and we are all heirs. We are all considered as sons of the kingdom. James here is saying that when you despise those whom the Lord has a heart for and loves to save, you are going against the very ways of God. 
in Malachi chapter 2, verse 9, God indicts His people as saying, you have not kept my ways, but instead have been partial. Notice what James says in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now again, James is speaking in general terms. Not all rich people are bad at oppressing the church. But evidently, in this situation, quite a few of them are. And James is pointing out the irony of this. You are dishonoring the poor man, but it's the unbelieving rich who are oppressing you. And they're blaspheming God. They're not on your side. And these are the ones who you think are so awesome? These are the ones who you want to be like? Are you really wanting to cozy up and side with and curry the favor of the enemies of God? John Calvin expressed the ridiculousness of this when he said, There is no reason for men zealously to defer to their own executioners and at the same time to hurt men who are on their side. To fawn over your oppressors makes no sense. But these folks are so dazzled and impressed by the temporary outward glory of man that they are blind to the injustices of the rich, and they end up becoming like them. Just as the church is oppressed by these ungodly rich people, the church turns around and images that in their own callous disregard for the poor. It's a sad irony there. They become like those rich oppressors, and sometimes with Christians today. Our desire to be accepted by the world, to be in the in crowd in the culture, to be our desire to be regarded as cool and accepted by those outside our church walls, we want that sometimes so bad we end up becoming so dazzled by worldly glory and prestige and we compromise our faith and we we end up becoming just like the world. James is warning these believers who are so fixated and impressed by outward appearance And that is so unlike God. You see, while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at what? The heart. God looks at the heart. And because God looks at the heart, He sees everyone as they really are. Golden rings on fingers, flowing, brilliant clothes, those things mean absolutely nothing to God. And neither does the shabby attire of the poor, because God's priorities are way different than man's. So we have penalties, description, God, gospel contradicting, penalties, problem, an exchange of glory, penalties, root, self-centeredness, penalties, orientation, anti-God. But finally, I want us to consider partial, uh, partiality's solution, which is remember who you are. Remember who you are. Look at verse 8. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well. James refers to the royal law. That's a strikingly unusual phrase in the Bible's description of the law. I don't think you see that anywhere else. And I think James uses that phrase to get our attention. A royal law suggests a law coming from a king meant for kingdom citizens. James is reminding his audience that they are kingdom people. They aren't to live according to the kingdom of this world, the principles and the wisdom of this world, which says you love those who love you back, or you love those who you can get a net benefit from. Instead, you love your neighbor, period, whether they be rich, whether they be poor, whether they be small, 
whether they be great, regardless of who they are, you lavish love and care and concern and deference upon others just as you do to your own self. That's how the citizens of God's kingdom are to live, because that's exactly what God is like. Taking us back full circle to verse 1, James reminds us that we are a people that have faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. Now, when we think about the glory of Jesus, we tend to think about Jesus exalted and high and lifted up and shining with brilliance and receiving cosmic adulation, and absolutely, that is a part of the glory of Jesus, but it is an incomplete picture of the glory of Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And right after that, he explains exactly what that means. He says, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus connects his glory with his death, with a dying to self that will result in much fruit and blessing to others. A few verses later, he talks about being high and lifted up, and what he means is, is being lifted up on a cross, which is so contrary to the ways of this world. The cross is foolishness, according to the wisdom of the world. The world thinks glory is found in upward mobility and prestige and honor. That's how you get glory. And and when the church is influenced by the world, we think the exact same thing. And we fawn over those who are moving up in the world, and we think we need to get in on these with these people so we can move up with them. But for Jesus, the path to glory actually is downward mobility. It's the exact opposite of our instincts. The Bible says that Jesus was God, but did not count equality with God as a thing to selfishly grasp onto for his own selfish purposes. Instead, Jesus, who had the glories and honor and riches of heaven, left all of that and became a man. He made himself a person of no reputation, as the old King James puts it in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If Jesus would have walked into our church service this morning, there would have been absolutely nothing attractive or flashy or outwardly impressive about his appearance. We would have quickly passed him over in favor of the person with the gold ring. Jesus came to earth, and whom did he show special attention to and favor for? The poor, the outcasts, the despised of society, the uneducated, the lepers and the sexually loose, the liars and the losers, and most importantly, those who knew they were desperately lost, who knew that they were desperately poor, not physically necessarily, but poor in spirit morally bankrupt. These were the kinds of, these were the people who, who could offer Jesus nothing in return. And these were the last kind of people the snobbish religious leaders of that day would ever associate with. And Jesus loves them. And Jesus serves them. He takes on the form of a servant. He stoops down low to wash the feet of selfish and sinful people, and he dies for them. 
He empties himself and gives all that he has so that they might greatly benefit. And he does it to save them from the eternal judgment of God in hell. Because there was no way they could save themselves. They were, again, utterly helpless, spiritually bankrupt and destitute. Nothing to to, to give to God. Nothing to, to commend themselves to God. And so, he takes on the sin of sinners. He receives God's punishment for those sins on their behalf so they don't have to be judged. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich in faith, rich in the kingdom. And he raises from the dead, and he extends a glorious promise to the world. And it's not, you serve me, and you do something for me, and, and, and if I, maybe I can benefit from that, and maybe I will save you. Instead, it's, if you by faith receive my service for you as a gift, then you, though you deserve eternal punishment, will receive eternal life with me. And therefore, the Bible says that after all of that, God exalts Jesus and gives him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's the glory of Jesus. He was, in the end, exalted, but he went up by going down. It's different than the values of the world. And what God wants you to see is that if you, if you hold the faith in this same Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, if you're one of His people, then it should affect how you live, how you treat others. You'll not seek to pay special attention to those who can do something back for you. You aren't honoring people to get something in return. You aren't to see people that way. You're to see people as Jesus does. You are to see with no partiality, people to serve, people to minister to, people to love, people to die to yourself to and for. And when you love and show favor to those who can do absolutely nothing for you, when you stoop down low to serve, to wash feet, to empty yourself and give all that you are so that another might benefit, it is in those moments where you are most like Jesus, and it is then when you most reflect His glory. Let's pray.